Hi, and welcome to Session 4 of the Silmarillion Seminar, in which we discuss the short but enormously interesting chapter on Aule and Yavanna. The participants named this session Entfest, though we also spend quite some time talking about dwarves. On to the discussion. Okay. So, Aule and Yavanna tonight. Now, this chapter is a very short chapter, and when I was doing the schedule, I, you know, I at first kind of toyed with the idea of lumping it in with a second uh, chapter because it's so short. But the more I thought about it, the more I, uh, the more I thought about it, the more I really decided not to do that because um, it is so it's so short, but there's so much in it. I mean, I think that you know, in some ways, you can see this chapter as containing sort of the central, uh, sort of two of the central issues. I think um, which people want to come back to with Tolkien again and again. Um, the story of Aule and the making of the dwarves is, I think, one of the central uh, sub-creation myths in all of Tolkien, one of the places where we can really see the issues about artistic creation and its relationship with God and, uh, you know, where the lines between good and evil power are. Um, It is such a brilliant focus for all of those questions. And then, of course, in the same chapter, we get the stuff with Yavanna and the relationship to the natural world and respect for living creatures. Um, So all of the questions about Tolkien and his um, desire for, uh, you know, respect for what is commonly called the environment and, and living things and stuff like that. So, I mean, just so much stuff going on here. I decided this was plenty um plenty to talk about in one week um uh the kelvar and the olvar uh first simple question is uh basically animals and plants respectively um so uh when manwe asks uh yavana what she would what she would sort of most want to protect she um uh, you know, she mentions the Kelvar can kind of take care of themselves, but the Olvar uh, can't run away uh, or defend themselves, and they're kind of trapped. And so, and of those trees, because they take so long to grow and are so quickly killed, um, that those are the things that she's sort of most anxious about. So anyway, yes, the Kelvar and the Olvar. Um, let's see. I want to come back to... Let's start with... Okay, let's see. Okay, kind of sorting through things here. Um, I want to start with Aule, um, and see a couple of you want to talk about uh, some combination of Aule and Melkor and Iluvatar. Um, so let's uh, let's get started in there. Let's see. Uh, Okay, I think, let's see, Joe, let's start with you. You started that one, I think. All right, uh, well, one thing I just found interesting um, is how similar but different just Ally and Melkor, which was mentioned in the beginning of everything, and uh, that, you know, they both desire to create that's part of them, and uh, but they desire to create here for two different reasons. You know, Melkor wants to rule, but Ally, um it says, wants to just love and teach so they can enjoy the beauty of Ea, and... Um, you know, uh, the only reason that Iluvatar even gives them, like, their own will in life is because of, wait, uh, is because of Aule's intentions. And I had a question, um, uh, did Iluvatar put the flame imperishable into the dwarves? Is that the only way someone can have their own free will? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it doesn't mention the flame imperishable uh, in particular, but uh, I mean, given the conversation that we had about the flame imperishable before and the way in which the flame seems to be connected, um, not just with life, but but even with being, um, I, I mean, I think that we can kind of hear some echoes of that idea in the terms that Iluvatar uses when he's talking to Aule, when he says to him, you know, I gave to you as a gift, your own being only, um, you know, and it's like the, so, I mean, I think that one way to think about it, that the imperishable flame seems to be one way of understanding basically that, that thing that Aule does not have to give to the dwarves. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's a, that's sort of a fine way to understand that. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, I was just looking up, uh, cause your parallel, your, your point about the parallel with Melkor, um, I think is really, is really an important one. And I think it's a good place to start because I think it's, it's crucial for us to see both how close Aule is to Melkor's perspective, but then also, of course, the differences between the two of them. Um, when we first get the description of Melkor... Um, back in the Ainu Lindelay, when he, uh, he, he had, when he, so where, where am I? I'm just sort of looking around here. Um, he had gone often, this is on page 16, he had gone often alone into the void places, seeking the imperishable flame, for desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own. And it seemed to him that Iluvatar took no thought for the void, and he was impatient of its emptiness. Uh, now, of course, that term, that impatience, is exactly what Iluvatar describes of Aule, too, and exactly how Aule's own impatience is described. He is impatient for the coming of the children. He wants to have these learners whom he can teach. Um, so he also, like Melkor, is impatient of the void. Uh, of course, it's not exactly the void here, um, sort of a lowercase v void instead of the uppercase v void that uh, that, that, that Melkor is impatient of. Um, but then, of course, Joe, you also point to the crucial difference between the two of them, that Aule does not desire uh, to have dominion between the two of them. Um, let's see. Uh, Jason, uh, why don't you, you want to uh, pitch in on this topic? I was just thinking, uh, it really struck me, going back and reading this again, how uh, this is a good example of, um, in contrast to a lot of modern uh, fiction and modern writing, how Tolkien is very comfortable with the idea of authority and hierarchy, and how uh, Aule fits into the hierarchy in the appropriate place, whereas Melkor does not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's... The thing that Iluvatar emphasizes about Aule um, is his humility. Like, that's what, that's the chief thing. That's, that's how Iluvatar characterizes what he does right. Um, and there, I think that that's a really good way to, uh, to describe it. Melkor, his impatience with the void is connected with his desire to rival Iluvatar, essentially, that he, he, his is an arrogant step to try to take over, and we see him trying to take over the great music on his own. Aule is not trying to take over anything. He's not, and his own characterization of it, it's so beautiful. You know, he's saying that it's, uh, you know, if his, his talking about sort of the son taking after the father and, um, and desiring to do the works of his father, even though he's, you know, he's, he's, he's not doing it right and he's stepping out of line, um, but that he's not not in the, the big picture st stepping out of line about that. Um, 
Elizabeth, I think that you had wanted to to contribute something about this. Hi, yes. Um, I just wanted to ask about, it mentions in here that the dwarves, at some point after their death, Aluvatar would um, hallow them. And um, I just had a question as to what that means. Aluvatar gives them life, but he doesn't hallow them. So what does that actually mean, I guess? Yeah, the the business about... Uh, what happens after the dwarves die um, is, uh, well, it's a little bit uncertain exactly uh, exactly what's going on there. Here, I've lost my page. Here we are again. Um, let's see. So this is on page 44 of, of this edition. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, the passage... Elizabeth, that you were referring to there. Um, Aforetime, it was held among the elves in Middle-earth that dying, the dwarves returned to the earth and the stone of which they were made. Yet that is not their own belief, for they say that Aule, the maker, whom they call Mahal, cares for them and gathers them to Mandos and halls set apart, and that he declared to their fathers of old that Iluvatar will hallow them and give them a place among the children in the end. Um... That is a really kind of curious expression. I agree, Elizabeth, that um, because, I mean, we were talking about hallowing last time. We see uh, uh, the trees being hallowed uh, by Manway. Um, we will soon see the Silmaril, the Silmarils being hallowed. Um, and so sort of in what sense are they going to be made holy? Are they unholy now? You know, in part they are. This is not, um, you know... Iluvatar makes a distinction between, you know, the children of his choice uh, and the children of his adoption. Um, you know, so it almost seems to suggest that they're like not yet fully adopted or something, um, and that that shall be later on. But in a sense, I think that that's kind of fitting. Um, that is, in the sense that there have been several times when we've had this kind of hint that everything's not going to be brought together. Everything's not going to be perfected until the end. Not even what the Ainur do is yet perfected and yet brought to fruition, um, but only shall be brought to fruition in the end. Think of that, the, uh, that, that really striking passage that we read before when we were doing the Aino Lindale about um, the music that will come at the end of days and how then all of the music will be sung aright and the, ch- the choirs of the children of Iluvatar will join with the Ainur for sort of the greatest singing um, and then all will be perfected in what appears to be sort of the new heaven and the new earth um, following the new and greater music. And there's language like that about the dwarves. Um, there that is what they what they believe is going to happen you know then their part you know that he shall hallow them and give them a place among the children in the end and then their part shall be to serve Aule and to aid him in the remaking of Arda after the last battle so they we see are going to be are going to be brought into connection with um with Aule himself there at the end that they're going to be um still sort of under him um but that they're going to, uh, um, 
but they're going to take part. We don't hear about the dwarves singing. Um, they're going to make things because uh, that's what they do. That's why they were made. That's how they were made. And so they are going to be serving Aule as Aule was serving Iluvatar um, and presumably with a similar kind of spirit. And so they too will contribute um, to to the final uh, to the final things. Um, um, let me let me get back to Dave. Last week we said that um, men sort of had a stronger connection to Iluvatar than to the Valar, whereas the elves sort of had this stronger connection to the Valar and didn't didn't spend a lot of time sort of speaking about Iluvatar directly. And I was wondering about the the, the strength of the connection between the dwarves um, and Aule here. Um, um, they you know the, their beliefs seem to suggest you know they have a special name for him and they have these beliefs about the end of the world and how they're gonna they have a special role to help him um, and all that kind of stuff and I just think that's all very um, uh, interesting and 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 I wonder if um, that's due in part that the Luvatar sort of tolerates that or fosters that because of um, Allah's humility. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It seems sort of on the one hand, uh, almost potentially to exacerbate uh, the problem. Like, okay, I'm going to, you know, you you overstepped your bounds and I'm going to sort of forgive that or tolerate that. Um, but then in consequence, we seem to have then these race of people who appear almost to worship him um, and not to have a direct relationship with Iluvatar instead. Now, I can't imagine that that's actually in fact the case. I mean, whenever there are any references to it and there aren't many, it appears that whenever the Valar instruct, whenever there are, are, are uh, beings which have connections with the Valar, they are instructed by the Valar about Iluvatar and that he is, uh, and that he is the one, the only one truly to be worshipped. Um, this seems to be why, by the way, many people in Middle-earth don't have any concept that Iluvatar exists because they haven't had that kind of contact with the Valar. Um, those who know the Valar know about Iluvatar. So I, so I can't imagine that it actually creates a sort of idolatrous uh, situation on the part of the dwarves, but there's no denying that they have a special connection. They certainly are connected with Aule in a very different way than any other of the children of Iluvatar are connected with any of the other Valar. You know, they are they are uh, in a sort of a special – I go back to the phrase uh, used in the Ainu Lindaway, um, you know, how the Ainur are the offspring of, of Iluvatar's thought. Um, you know, the dwarves are in a special way the offspring of, of Aule's thought. I mean, they are his design. So um, – so they are, uh, you, know, <clears throat> you know, Laura mentions Elbereth and the elves. That is certainly the only other parallel that we get. That is the only other of that kind of direct connection, unless we want to think about uh, the Ents and Yavanna, though we certainly don't have much to go on there. But um, the elves reverence Elbereth above the rest, um, and, and that's because they are the people of the stars. That's what their name means. Um, but... Uh, um, but again, they're not, they're not necessarily, um, they're not connected with them like the dwarves are from Aule, though. The elves, the elves, although they are particularly, they connect themselves with the stars because they awake under the starlight and the stars are the only light that they know, um, and so they're, they are kind of particularly attached to the stars and they reverence Elbereth as the, you know, as the, the maker of the stars, yet 
Elberth didn't make them in the way that Outlay does, in fact, make, you know, design the dwarves. So, um, so even there, which I agree is the, the, the sort of the second closest tie that we see, um, is really not much like it. The other thing that's interesting is the, the fact that there's so much like him. They specifically, um, I think it's, um, Yvonne points out that, that, uh, like, like Aulay, the dwarves care most for the works of their own hands and not necessarily for other living, growing things or pretty much anything else. Um, and so that's interesting, too. None of the other, um, you know, well, children, uh, yeah, I suppose you could say the ends and the, and the eagles and other things are also children in a sense, but nobody else who gets the special designation as children has a particular sort of um, uh, parallel nature with any one of the Valar. Right. Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that, um, uh, I think that it's, um, it's a really interesting question because on the one hand you can see that, that, that seems to be sort of a bad thing. That is how much they take after him directly. Cause remember, um, what the Valar were really excited about when they saw in the vision, the coming of the children of Iluvatar, um, what they were excited about was that they were other than themselves. They were being other than themselves because they came directly from Iluvatar and they were really excited to find them and to love them. Um, and through them, through knowing them and loving them to learn more about Iluvatar. Um, and so to some extent, therefore, the way in which the dwarves are kind of directly derivative of Aule and Aule's own perspective and Aule's own desire makes them lesser. I mean, I think that's sort of the way, again, thinking back to Iluvatar's term, the difference between the children of his adoption and the children of his design. Um, they, the, the, the children of his design um, they reflect him directly in different ways, unconnected as, as, as siblings to the Valar, little siblings, but siblings anyway, to the Valar. Um, whereas the dwarves are more like the children of Aule rather than his brothers and sisters. So I, <laughs> sisters, there are dwarf women. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, I, so I think that that's important but it's not just a bad thing. I mean, we can't just say, therefore, you know, dwarves are bad. Iluvatar does adopt them. And therefore this becomes, this is made into a good thing. You know, this, this, this is part of Iluvatar's plan as well. Um, and it will serve his glory also. So I don't think that we are supposed to, uh, to think that the dwarves are just um, sort of intrinsically flawed for that way. But again, I come back to, the passage that Elizabeth pointed out about them being hallowed at the end, um, you know, that there, there is this, there is this intrinsic flaw. And remember, remember that, that Louvatar says to Aule, I'm not going to amend it. Um, you know, your work is, your work's going to be as you made it. And so he, he shows like they're flawed and he doesn't just mean that they're stunted and ugly, which of course they are. Everyone's going to think the dwarves are funny looking. And I love the passage about how, you know, Aule has only a very approximate working understanding of what the children are supposed to look like. And that's why the dwarves are so funny looking. Um, but that's not just what he means. He's not just talking about, um, that I'm, I'm not going to make them pretty. Um, but rather, you know, their own beings are not going to be perfected yet, um, until they are finally perfected in the end, I think. Um, but, uh, let's see, Mike, you, uh, have been wanting to. Yeah. What, what struck me about the, uh, Melkor Aule 
uh, comparison was that with Owlate, we've now seen two examples of rule breaking and judgment. And as I was thinking about it, uh, it seemed to me that what we what you'll see with Tolkien and and in various characters that are forced to make judgments, that it always seems to follow the same sort of four steps where there's a, a character who's forced to play the role of a judge. There's been some rule that's been broken. That character then needs to evaluate, you know, what was the intention or motivation behind the rule breaking. Then there's sort of a questioning about, okay, you've broken the rule. Now, is there remorse? Is there contrition? Is there humility? And then finally, if, if that is evident, then the character who's forced to judge has to come up with some sort of creative but just solution. And I think that in the Outlay case, you see it sort of playing out in all four steps, exactly in that order, and then that, that process gets repeated by characters high and low in all sorts of tiers of the universe we're, we're looking at in the same way. And I think it's just fascinating when other characters – that are forced into a judging situation, uh, are, are confronted with rule breaking. How they, 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 however, they're, they've come to the wisdom, go through the same process, and then without fail, they have to come up with some creative way to deal with the rule breaking, but take into account that there's contrition, humility, remorse, and that the motivation for the rule breaking is, in some sense, uh, defensible. Right. Now, Mike, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. Um, I mean, it is certainly true when you talk about sort of the justice that Iluvatar gives. He does um, – you know, remember Yavanna's comment, you know, he has given you not only mercy um, but bounty. You know, he, he's been not only merciful but he was gracious, you know, that he gave a gift. Um, but he didn't just make – he didn't make it as if – he didn't cover. He didn't change or cover up the fact that Iluva, that that Aule had made a mistake, that he had in fact sinned, um, and so you see there is a consequence of that sin. And in some ways, you know, as we were talking about the the sort of the questionable nature that's not quite the right way to put it uh of the dwarves is is you know the the as yet unhallowed the as yet imperfect the as yet imperfect nature of the dwarves is the consequence of his sin it couldn't be otherwise under the circumstances um and iluvatar is not going to just take that away but um but uh but you know we can see in there i think um Ilubitar's justice. Um, so yeah, no, I think that that's a really interesting way to think about it. And that is, um, I agree, a kind of pattern there. Um, Jack, I know you wanted to talk about Ilubitar from a while back. Hi. Yeah. The, uh, uh, in rereading this, what really struck me about this chapter um, more than anything was just the reappearance of, or the appearance of Ilubitar. Um, I think um, in our slow reading over the last few weeks, and um, we've come to get a real understanding of the vast amounts of time that have passed up until now, and this is the first time Iluvatar has appeared. And if, if I recall correctly, he only appears once more um, in the Silmarillion. So I found that very momentous, and so it's not really a question, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we're certainly not going to see this very much. And in fact, I don't think we're ever again going to see um, 
as I recall, I don't remember even any other places in the Silmarillion where Iluvatar is going to again, going to again enter into dialogue with somebody, and we're going to actually hear him speak in this kind of way. So no, this is a, um, this is a very striking moment in that way, and very important. And I think uh, just sort of picking up on something, this is not a shift yet uh, to the Yavana half of the chapter, but just to sort of point out um, a passage related to this um, in Manwe's vision that he has. Um, uh, let me see. The part about the hand of Iluvatar. Um, let's see. Yes. Um, when Manway has his vision, let's see, then it, this is the top of 46. Then it seemed to Manway that the song rose once more about him, and he heeded now many things therein, that though he had heard them, he had not heeded before. And at last the vision was renewed, but it was not now remote, for he himself, he was with himself within it. And yet he saw that all was upheld by the hand of Iluvatar, and the hand entered in, and from it came forth many wonders that had until then been hidden from him in the hearts of the Ainur. So we get this sense here, um, or rather, Manway is granted in this moment, this insight into the fact that we were kind of discussing last time that we were suspicious about all along, not only of the of Iluvatar, but even of the Valar themselves. That is, he is very active, but most people don't see it. That is, just as they do not see the hand of Iluvatar in sustaining and up, upholding all things, um, that hand being sort of too big to be visible, um, the hand that supports all life and supports the world itself, but also they are unaware of the way in which the hand of Iluvatar is entering in uh, and bringing forth wonders hidden. And I don't think necessarily it's just that the wonders themselves were completely imperceived, but that even that the work of the hand of Iluvatar there was unseen. Um, so Manway is, is given this vision. And I think that, you know, if this vision were granted at other times and in other ways, it would be visible in other, in other ways too. But so, so we get sort of both things here. On the one hand, we get this first intervention, this almost unique intervention of Iluvatar in conversation um, with, uh, with one of the Valar. It was unique within the narrative. Um, but at the same time, we also later on in that same chapter are given this glimpse of what he's doing, um, what he's doing around and, uh, um, and behind the, behind the scenes. Um, let's see, uh, Dave, you wanted to contribute to that? I just wanted to ask really quickly. We, we, we sort of keep revisiting this over and over again, but I wanted to ask about the role of free will here because, you know, it's a, the way it's the way the events are described and portrayed. There, there's this whole, you know, oh, Ale, you went and did something that you weren't supposed to do and that nobody expected you to do, uh, and yet, you know, we all know that to some extent, Luvatar, we think anyway, uh, he's portrayed as all knowing and and all that kind of stuff. So, was was what Ale did really a part of the plan all along? Actually, um, how does it fit into the music? That kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, well, um, we get little direct comment on that there. That is, um, Iluvatar doesn't mention it. In fact, the one way in which he comments on it um, seems odd in that he talks about the children of his design versus the children of his adoption, as if, therefore, his design had not included the dwarves, which in one sense it didn't. Um, but I think that that sense 
is sort of the same sense in which Melkor's music was not part of the design. That is, when when Iluvatar propounds the theme to the Ainur at the beginning, it does not contain um, Melkor's discord. But that doesn't mean that Melkor's rebellion and his discord is completely outside the understanding or anticipation of Iluvatar and control. As he explains, of course, as soon as the music ends, um, he makes it plain to Melkor that there's nothing he can do that does not come. Uh, there's nothing Melkor can do that does not come from Iluvatar, um, and that does not contribute to his overall design. Certainly, if that's true of Melkor's rebellion, it's also true of Aule's little, what's well, not even really a rebellion, his sort of slip-up here. Um, so, but but again, clearly, and in this, uh, you know, I come back um, to the point that, that Mike and, and others were making, we can still see Aule's own free will being respected here. Um, well, if respect is quite the right word, Iluvatar says, you know, what you, what, you know, essentially what you have chosen, you have chosen. I'm going to let your choice stand. I'm not going to undo it. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to go around it. I'm just going to let it happen. And, uh, um, and of course, it's going to be incorporated, and in the end, they will be hallowed, and um, and they will become part of the glorious picture later on because they have been adopted by Iluvatar. But in a sense, in a sense, everything. Well, I don't. I don't want to say in a sense everything gets adopted because I think the relationship between the dwarves uh, and Iluvatar is sort of different than the relationship between the evil between Iluvatar and the the evil introduced by Melkor. Um, even though that's all going to contribute to the glory of Iluvatar's design, we're told as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dave, you follow up asking in, in text form here, is Iluvatar all knowing? He is based on everything that we can see. Uh, and certainly the only times when people talk about him explicitly, they certainly seem to assume that he is. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, th I, I think that we are supposed to be, operating under the uh, under the concept here that Iluvatar is a transcendent, omniscient, and omnipotent being. Um, so, yeah, I think that he's not being kind of taken on the hop here. Yeah, Joe, go ahead. <clears throat> no, I just kind of want to say it seems like all things are possible, but it doesn't mean that it's all going to happen if you look at it that way. And then also, when you think about it, Iluvatar gave them control to kind of do whatever they wanted to, so I mean, you can't. It's it's like a free will with like like predestination, as in they can do whatever they want. So it seems like you know, obviously, Luvatar something is going to happen. So Luvatar is going to know what is going to happen, but it does not mean there was not a choice available. Right. Um, I just kind of wanted to <clears throat> throw that out there. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's it's important to keep in mind that. Um, you know, as I said a while back, you know, that this is not, I think in general, and I think certainly um, from everything that I can see about in, in Tolkien's writing, this is, we're not supposed to be thinking of this as a choice. That is a choice between predestination and free will, that either the creatures can choose and determine their own destinies to some extent, um, you know, and their choices have reality and real consequences, or Iluvatar is in charge and everything works out according to his will. Uh, from, from the Ainu and the Leon, clearly both of those things are operating. And that, you know, has for centuries been 
the traditional Christian doctrinal explanation of free will and predestination, that both of them are plainly operable. Um, you got to go back to, you got to go, go back to Boethius and I shan't indulge myself now as I did, uh, several weeks ago, uh, in a, in a, in a long, uh, Boethius side note. But, um, but, but again, that's clearly, uh, sort of a place where, where we can see this. And I certainly see Tolkien, um, in his thought following along, um, with that kind of Boethian concept there of them both being operative. Um, I want to come back to the dwarves. Um, let's see, John, you had had a question, I think about, about the stubbornness of the dwarves, which I think was a, was a really interesting question. So let me, um, let me come back to you here. Um, yes, I was merely curious because it is said in the chapter that um, the stubbornness of dwarves came from their uh, resistance to domination. And we see this with their interactions later on, for example, in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings with Gimli. And, you know, is it their resistance to this um, sense of domination which leads them to fear the elves, for example, because of their great power at times? Or, you know, anything alien to themselves? Yeah, I think, yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, you know, in this, as we can see in many other um, kind of similar places, we can see that kind of Tolkien is always so good at seeing both sides of a question. I mean, uh, it's you know, it's one of the things that I really admire um, about him as a thinker, um, and I think that we can see that really coming out here. The dwarves, on the one hand, they are resistant. You know, they have been made hardy and strong to endure and to resist domination because they were conceived, you know, in order to resist the the, the domination of Melkor. And that's a good thing. That's clearly a good thing. They are strong. Um, being dominated is not a good thing. Um, so that's great. But... Uh, you know, as you point out, it manifests itself also just in stubbornness, you know, that we see also their quarrelsomeness as well. That is the, 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 the their quickness to take offense, um, their stubbornness in the, in the pursual, uh, you know, in the, in the pursuit of vengeance, um, and in the desire for, uh, for, for, for their rights. You know, these these are some of the things that really characterize dwarves throughout not only quarrelsomeness with others, but quarrelsomeness among themselves and the ways that they tend to keep themselves apart and not get along with anybody else. Um, you know, there is a sense in which it seems that the dwarves are kind of closed off from other people. And that's not a good thing. It seems to be sort of part of the spirit of them being resistant to domination. And again, this is that resistance is clearly a good thing. And I think that we can the, the place where you can see this coming out most most clearly in the later writings, um, and this is a sort of, it's another passage that I love, uh, that is how the rings of power don't affect them. Not that they have no effect on them, they do, but they are unable, Sauron is unable to dominate them and to make them into wraiths, um, because just as they're designed, they're not going to become wraiths, because this, that's exactly what they were designed uh, against. Um, and I always kind of uh, like imagining uh, sort of Aule's, uh benevolent smugness over in Valinor as he sees Sauron trying to seduce the dwarves with the rings and turn them into wraiths and, uh, uh, and, 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 and it doesn't work. Um, so that's clearly a good thing, but yeah, but, but that, but that character of stubbornness, that resistance, um, does manifest itself in, in some really bad ways as well. So we can see how that's really kind of the other side of that coin. There's also some, 
good to um, to being open uh, to being sort of uh, even sort of more humble. The dwarves are, are, are not, you know, in these things, they're, they're very self-regarding. They're very interested in their own rights. Um, you know, and this seems to be part of that, that stiffness, that, that resistance, um, that was really put into them at the beginning. Um, let's see, Matt, I think you had a, a comment to contribute, to contribute on this stubbornness question. No, no. <laughs> okay. Matt's a client. No problem. Um, okay. Oh yeah. John, you wanted to, you wanted to follow up with, uh, the secrecy of the dwarves. Um, yes. I just wanted to bring up as well that the uh, dwarves language is actually quite secretive. We don't know quite much about it and they don't share it with a lot of outsiders. So I was wondering if this was another example of how they wish not for their culture to be, um, well, taken advantage of, of course but also um, perhaps dominated by others. They do borrow from Dairon's runes. Yes. Uh, is it pronounced Dairon's runes? Dairon, I think, yeah. Is in the uh, Halls of Moria. Yeah. But we don't see much of their language besides, you know, Casa Doom, you know, <laughs> or better yet, um, the axes of the dwarves. The axes of the dwarves are upon you. you know? <laughs> yes, I like um, how that's... That, phrases like that. We're willing to share that with people. That is the people we're about to chop into pieces. But yes, yes. Um, no, I, th- that I think is a really great point. Uh, notice we did get a reference to their language um, here in this passage. That is, that Aule taught it to them. He had designed, of course, this this being a Tolkien story. You know, Aule's project number one is to fashion the dwarves. But his second immediate project was that you know he's done this act of philological subcreation too and Aule has of course designed a language for them and is teaching it to them uh and that's what he's in the middle of that's what he's in the middle of doing uh when Iluvatar catches him um but so 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 that's one interesting thing is that it seems that their language their language is different um than other people's languages, fundamentally, it seems, because it is a language that it appears was taught to them. If we're to understand that the dwarf language that they speak in later is this same language, um, which is never contradicted, so far as I know, um, then it's, it is, in a sense, a secret language, as it, as it was taught and devised for them by Aule himself, which the languages of the other peoples are languages which they developed, generally. The elves aren't taught language by the Valar. Um, they develop language themselves. In fact, that's how they define themselves. They call themselves the Quindi, that is, those who speak with language. Um, so, you know, their language is kind of a more sort of public thing uh, in that sense. It's a more social thing, one devised among themselves instead of one given to them and also, you know, given to them kind of secretly, um, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, you know, behind closed doors, as Aule knew he was doing something dodgy. Um, so that's one interesting thing about it. But I think that we can also see the fact that they won't teach it to others. It's hard to see that as a good thing. Maybe it is, and maybe I'm misunderstanding it. But I think that there again, we can see sort of the flip side of their stubbornness and of their um, and th- their tendencies uh, to pride. Um you know, which are sort of the fruit of Aule's own transgression and his own stepping beyond the boundaries that have been set for him. Um, you know, and so th- their unwillingness to teach uh, 
really anything, but certainly their unwillingness to teach their language, I think is, is kind of a red flag with the dwarves that like, this is again, one of their, one of their problems. Um, one indication that they're, uh, that there's, that there's something somewhat questionable, um, about them. And I, I don't want to make that, I don't want to make too much of that, that like the dwarves are seriously sketchy. Let's see, Laura, go ahead. Story of Aule and the dwarves, it makes me think of the biblical story of Abram and Isaac and how uh, uh, Abraham was uh, willing to sacrifice his child because he had trust in God. And that's similar to um, Aule's trust in uh, the vision of uh, Iluvatar, that he's willing to sacrifice the dwarves, which he thinks of as his being his own children. Uh, Laura, that is fantastic. I never thought of that before. Um, but once you make that connection, it seems so inescapable. Yeah, um, that same motion of I am raising my hand to destroy my child um, and the voice of God intervening, you know, and saying, now I know that you fear the Lord. So no, don't do it. Because that's, of course, exactly what Aule shows. What he shows is that he, in the Old Testament sense, fears the Lord, that he um, that he properly respects Iluvatar, that his action was not motivated by rebellion as Melkor's does, that he's not trying to set himself up above Iluvatar, that his transgression has come only from a sort of excessive enthusiasm to do the thing that God has designed him to do, you know, um, so, yeah, I mean, of course, it's different in that this is not a situation that was designed as a test. I mean, the way that God creates the situation for Abraham um, is clearly pretty different um, than the Aoi situation. But, yeah, that 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 movement is really compelling. Go ahead. Yeah, the circumstances are different. You know, it, it it's not God telling him, okay, go ahead and take your child up and, and sacrifice him. But it, it shows kind of that same trust that um, Abraham and Aulay both have in their, in their creator. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and humility as well, you know, that, uh, you know, that's, this is now, of course it's different for, Abraham, he doesn't understand why God has asked him to sacrifice his son. Though, again, it's a sacrifice. It's not just God doesn't just say, hey, you know, kill your son. Um, he tells him to offer him as a sacrifice, which does put it in a very different context. Um, and whereas with Aule, what Aule is doing is saying, I will, as an act of obedience, destroy these things which are the product of my transgression. Um, basically Aule saying, look, I'm not going to try in any way to sort of profit from my rebellion. Um, but, uh, um, so yes, I think, but, but, but I think that we can see that kind of connection there, them both willing to give up the thing. Mm -hmm. And Aule actually volunteers to, to destroy them without being told. He, right. he sort of offers that up. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I just thought it, it just struck me as a as an interesting um, comparison uh, between those two stories. So I wonder yeah. if Tolkien maybe had that in the back of his mind. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I agree. I mean, I think that's brilliant. Um, I think it's a really brilliant connection. Um, and I don't know. I mean, if I, I, you know, I don't know if Tolkien was thinking of that explicitly or not, but whether he was or not, it really works. Uh, and I think it's really illuminating. I think that's really fantastic. Um, to, okay, Mike, go ahead. I just wanted to say that in the to push the Abraham and Isaac uh, uh, comparison a little bit further, in the in the biblical story, I think at the very end there's this sense that okay, there still there still needs to be a consequence here. Uh, we're not going to sacrifice a person, and then there's a ram that's spotted, you know, in the bushes, and the ram gets sacrificed. Yeah. In the same way, in this story, there's been this transgression, and it all can't just work out cleanly. In, in this way either. So there's got to be this moment where the judge or, or God or Iluvatar needs to say, okay, here's what's, here's the consequence. Here's what needs to happen. It's not just going to all be okay. Here's the way we're going to handle this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, and I think that there we can see the parallel between the two stories isn't exact in that, of course, with Aule, there is a transgression that needs to be punished. And with Abraham, it's more of an offering, sort of a positive offering to God that is to be given. He asks first Isaac to be given to him as as an offering, as a sacrifice, and then and then God Himself gives, you know, provides the ram uh, to sacrifice in Isaac's place. So the, so then you know the ram is offered as a sacrifice to God. Um, you know, in both places we can see sort of the grace of God operating there. And again, so one is punishment and one is offering. So the parallel isn't exact, but I agree. Um, I think that it is important to remember to remember uh, the sacrifice of the ram there. Dave, go ahead. Um, yes. Uh, I'm channeling my old college days where you take a point like this and then you try to take it much further than you really should. <laughs> um, I was – I. You, you kind of pointed out that the situation was – I mean that, that's what that's what these classes are all about in college, right? You try to draw <laughs> these connections between things and then uh, – and, and you try to make them much stronger than they really should be. Anyway, no, I was, that's, that's I, exactly I was what your professors curious. have in mind, I'm sure. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, you pointed out that this situation was different in that it wasn't really designed as a test um, – uh, whereas Abraham's situation was, but um, you know, going back to the whole music and and the free will versus determinism whole thing dynamic going on here, I wonder if maybe it it might have been, or or at least that that uh, that um, uh, Louvatar sort of seized upon this opportunity to to use it as a teachable moment to use right. the, the modern vernacular, which I'm sure Tolkien would hate. <laughs> Um, because I, I do think that that parallel certainly it certainly seems to end up teaching the same lesson that that you know you that humility before God is more important than even you know, things that you really really long for maybe even things that you did with good intentions or things that you were even promised by God. Yeah, you know, uh, wow, I think this uh, puts us uh, near uh, near genuine profundity. I think. Um, that you can say you can say that in a sense of course the very giving of free will is itself implicitly in its whole framework a kind of test not exactly a test in the sense of like i'm just like sitting back and evaluating you and seeing if you screw up um but there is that kind of um that kind of situation implicit in everything Outlay wasn't testy he wasn't he, 
Iluvatar never says to him, as he says to Abraham, just, you know, I want you to destroy them. And then when he goes to do it, stops him from doing it. But again, he, he does that. That is, Aule does that of his own free will, but it's clearly the right thing to do. It is clearly, um, that is how more than anything else, he shows the humility that Iluvatar approves of. So um, I think that that's, but yeah, again, all, you know, as you say, even going back to the music, all of the granting of free will is a kind of test, you know, Melkor and, you know, all of them, but Melkor included were being tested. I go back again to that point and I'm now forgetting um, who pointed this out. Was it, was it, was it Mike or Joe? I can't remember that passage uh, from the very beginning that each was to adorn the theme um, if he will. Right. Um, So the entire music was in its way, a kind of test. I've given you free will. Now, now you choose how you will apply it. You have freedom. Um, you can do right. You can do wrong. You can submit yourselves to me, or you can try to do your own thing. Now go and see what happens. And of course, Melkor fails that test, um, as do many others. Yeah, we, I think somebody previously in previous weeks mentioned, you know, maybe Melkor was just taking a Luvatar at his word, but uh, we sort of debunked that theory. But I think Aule, in his example, he really did. <laughs> he, right. he took a Luvatar seriously. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll adorn it all right. But I guess his, his attitude and then his willingness to even to submit and to give up the very thing that he, he adorned it with um, is what essentially earned him grace. Uh, I guess that's what you'd have to call what Luvatar does. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, both mercy and grace. Um, and that's what Yavana points out that like, you know, he, he should have punished you. Um, and the fact that he didn't punish you, that was him showing mercy on you. The fact that he not only didn't punish you, but also gave you this gift that as he actually gave you, um, gave you his, uh, his, gave you these children to actually have, um, that was grace. That was, that was a gift beyond just the, the, the lack of punishment. Chris, go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, I guess this put me in mind of some of our earlier discussions of, uh, it was probably back in the island. I knew Linda Lake when you were talking about, uh, um, from the very beginning, he didn't conduct the music. He just let everybody improvise. And uh, uh, I think that kind of thinking that the idea of it being a test, that everybody's being tested, is kind of uh, a different angle on that. He's letting everybody improvise. Melkar, of course, takes it a little bit too much. Um, Aule goes in that direction, and then he's, you know, he gets uh, the consequence that he gets. But... Uh, I just thought it was a, another interesting way of thinking about it as of the back to the music analogy again and uh, them being encouraged to improvise. Yeah, no, I, I think that that, that is important. Um, and I think that the important thing to keep in mind here is that what is that, what is that issue here is not sort of the extent of improvisation. Um, that is that the problem is that Melkor improvised too much and Aule improvises a little bit too much and others improvise just the right amount or whatever. All of them are improvising, but so the question is not, 
how much they're improvising, that is, how much they are applying their own will and adorning it with thoughts of their own imagining, but rather what is the nature of those thoughts? Um, you know, what is sort of the direction of their improvisation? Melkor doesn't do wrong by improvising. What he does do wrong is by trying to alter his own part, by trying to make it more important um, and to change the whole structure of the music to and serve himself. Harmony with others. Right, exactly. Not looking for harmony, but instead, you know, the fact that he wants a solo, that is his, that is his problem. Um, if he had improvised to the same extent, but harmonized himself with everybody else to be part of the great music, he'd have been fine. Um, and that's what Aule does. That's what Aule shows. I'm not trying to set up for myself. Um, this was actually not a self-aggrandizing movement by himself. Again, he, it's humility that he shows. Um, and also he shows, hey, this adorning that I was doing, it's not wrong. It's not wrong for me to want to make these creatures. Um, you put in my heart the desire to make things. And I was just so, you know, th these particular adornments of the theme, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I am. This is who I am because it's how you made me. Um, so in a sense, he doesn't apologize for that. What he does apologize for is that he did overstep, that he did kind of make it about himself because of his impatience. He and wanted, he, And he should have known that he didn't have, well, no, Louvatar says authority, but he didn't have, he didn't have the ability to make thinking creatures. Um, right. And I get the impression he should have known that. Right. And also you get the impression that he'd have figured that out pretty soon, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, when he found exactly. out that they were just automata, right? Um, but yeah, no, I think that, um, uh, I, 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 yeah, I do think that that's, um, you know, it's, I'm sure he would have figured that out, but he hadn't really gotten a chance yet. You know, as Iluvatar said, as soon as he turned his thought to something else, they would have been standing idle. And of course he hadn't turned his thought to anything else yet, um, since he had, since he had made them. But yeah, um, I think that, you know, there you can clearly see the desire to, um, you know, that, that, that his desire is a, is a really positive desire. Um, and it's okay for him to improvise, but it's not okay for him to bring out himself. I mean, he was trying to stand in the place of Iluvatar, not only, not only was he impatient in the sense of, you know, the children of Iluvatar are coming and I want them now, but also he was standing in the place of Iluvatar. He was, you know, they're the children of Iluvatar. They knew not only that the children were coming, but they knew that the children were going to come from Iluvatar and not from them. So even just him, you know, he's not just trying to short circuit the time, you know, in saying like, ah, you know, I'm going to make the children of Iluvatar. No, you're not going to make it. They're not. Did, did, are they called the children of Aule? No, they're the children of Iluvatar. So th that is the way in which he is gets a little bit Melkor-like, you know, where he is sort of lifting his part up um, and making it sort of into that solo and not harmonized with everything else. He is a maker, but he's not the maker. Um, and that's where he really, um, that's where he really kind of, uh, that's where he really kind of, uh, goes astray. Okay, let's see. I think oh, one thing that I want to comment on before I'm going to sort of let us start segueing into uh, the Yavana half of things now. But um, but actually, before we do that, I want to comment on the, the thing. Oh, one thing that we haven't mentioned uh, in the in the course of this discussion of, uh, of Aule so far, and that is the connection between Aule, the way in which Aule 
and his sin here serves as a kind of um, a kind of central myth for all of artistic subcreation and the connections between Tolkien's depiction of outlay here and his discussion, um, especially in the poem Mythopoeia, um, and also in some of his discussion in on fairy stories, um, that, you know, the, the, the Tolkien says famously in, uh, in his poem Mythopoeia that, that artistic subcreation, the making of things, the making of, uh, you know, the invention the, the invention of worlds and the telling of stories and the making of art is part of human nature because, as he says, we were made in the image of a maker. And that's very much like what Aule himself says. So I think that the story of Aule and the making of the dwarves here is a really neat place to go back to when you're looking at that, when you're looking at uh, sort of Tolkien's concepts of artistic subcreation, both in its naturalness, that is, you know, like like Aule and, and, uh, as Aule says, um, as Aule says to Yovana, you know, where he talks about being the child of his father, um, yet the making of things is in my heart from my own making by thee and the child of little understanding that makes a play of the deeds of his father may do so without thought of mockery, but because he is the son of his father. So we can see, you know, on the one hand, both, some of Tolkien's ideas about how intrinsic this desire to make things is. And in Mythopoeia, he staunchly defends the, you know, the, the fundamental human right to be a sub-creator and to be a maker. But at the same time, the story of Aule and the making of the dwarves also shows there is a danger. It is possible to overstep. Um, you can't, you can't actually set yourself up in the place of God. That has to be, there has to be a humility that goes along with that. Um, and Aule illustrates that too. I, I just think this is a really, I just wanted to kind of mention that um, and just kind of, uh, yeah, just draw attention to it because it's, it's a really interesting passage to consult um, whenever one is thinking about subcreation and those other ideas. But now I shall, I shall let us, I know several of you have been interested to talk about, um, Yavanna and the Yavanna half of things. Uh, Jason, let me come to you. You had wanted to make a point about the conflict between Aule and Yavanna, and that seemed like a good uh, a good kind of segue here. I was just thinking that uh, almost every time that we see the, the Valar acting, there's a cooperation and consensus among them. They There's a division of labor. Each one of them sort of specializes in different things, but they also work together to accomplish almost everything they do in, in the spring of Arda, and then they cooperate to fight Melkor and all of that. And looking back at this, I couldn't think of another instance off the top of my head where there was a conflict between members of the Valar. And I'm wondering if you know, Yavanna comes to Aule and says, your people better not come after my people or they'll, we'll fight back. And, Ale says, well, we're coming after you anyway because we need the wood. <laughs> and, right. and I wonder if um, if we can read that as one of those rippling effects or side effects I mean, of Aule's disobedience, if it introduces that conflict among the Valar as well as what Iluvatar has warned Aule saying that your children will have conflict with my children as well. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's, that is a really important thing. And I think that, 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 uh, that last thing that you said, I do agree with, I think that we can see in this a consequence. Um, it is another instance of, okay, look, you know, Auli is forgiven and, um, he has been shown not only mercy, but grace, but there are consequences and there are going to be consequences, um, for, for this action. And I think that, you know, that, for, that, that, I mean, it, you know, going back to what, what I had just been saying about the parallels or in the, uh, b- between Aule and Melkor and thinking about the music, um, he did not, Aule has not made a massive, uh, discord like Melkor did, but he has, in as much as he has transgressed, he has gone outside of harmony, um, with, um, with his wife. And that's a really crucial thing. I mean, we talked way back on the first week about, well, at first, actually, I guess we talked about it more in the second week when we discussed the Valaquinta. Um, that is what, what it means for, uh, two of the Valar to be spouses to each other. Um, and the kind of particular sort of special harmony and partnership between the two of them. Um, and so the fact that there would be, a degree of discord between Aule and Yavanna therefore seems to be, seems to be very important. And that, that's the tone that Yavanna uses when she, when she talks to him, when Aule tells her what has happened, the way that she frames it. Um, yet because thou hiddest this thought from me until its achievement, thy children will have little love for the things of my love. They will love first the things made by their own hands as doth their father. In other words, that disharmony, that you showed that's going to be echoed in, in them. They're going to show that same thing. You know, she's not saying, um, you know, sometimes I think it might be possible to mishear Yovana here and saying, since you didn't tell me, I'm going to hold that against you. And there's going to be trouble because of it. She's not saying that at all. She's saying the consequence I, I can see, I can foresee the consequences of this choice of yours because you separated yourself from me and did this without telling me and did this out of harmony with me and the other Valar. Therefore your children are not going to be in harmony with, they're not going to be in harmony with the other children and they're not going to be in harmony uh, with, with the natural world, with the things that grow with the children with the things of her province. So, yeah, I think that that's a really important thing as far as sort of other precedents or other similar kinds of situations. Um, I don't remember anything quite exactly like this, though there certainly are other times when the Valar do not seem to be completely in harmony. That is when they disagree with each other. Um, you know, we will see other times where there will be kind of opposing opinions and stuff among them. Nothing quite exactly like this. Um, but there still is disharmony. I think it's important to recall I, one kind of big picture thing that we can see from this is to be reminded the Ainur are not perfect. Um, they are not infallible and they are not flawless. Aule does sin. He's forgiven, but he does sin. And uh, and there are consequences of that. And we can see the character that really kind of leaps to mind um, here is Ase the Maiar of the, of the, of the oceans and especially the coasts. Um, and, uh, in the Valaquenta was emphasized his love of violence and, um, and that there was a time when he rebelled against Olmo and tried to take over the lordship of the sea, but he was brought back to his allegiance. Um, you know, but that he still will sometimes go off and, uh, and, not quite rebel, but take action without consulting Olmo and everything. So, um, so, I mean, I think there we can see a clear example of, 
you know, one of one of the Ainur, one of the Maiar in this case, who is um, definitely flawed um, and definitely fallible and sort of standing on kind of morally shaky ground. And I think it's important to recall this. The gods are not, you know, the gods, as they are sometimes called, the Valar are not uh, are not perfect um, in any sense. Um, let's see. Uh, Laura, let's see. I want to follow up with your question about Yovana here. Yeah, I just uh, was thinking when I read that passage where it says, um, yet it was in the song, said Yovana, for while the, thou wert in the heavens and with Ulmo built the clouds and poured out the rains, I lifted up the branches of great trees to receive them, and some sang to Iluvatar amid the wind and the rain. Does that mean that she actually created these trees to sing, that she basically gave the trees life? And isn't that sort of like what Aule has done with the dwarves? Yeah, see, I don't think so. I mean, well, at least we never get, and this is sort of one of the interesting parallels between the two scenes, or I guess lack of parallels between the two halves of this chapter. Um in both halves of the chapter, we get one of the Valar, in fact, one of this, you know, one of the partners in this, in this divine marriage between Ali and Yavanna, um, establishing sort of children of their own thought and within their own province, which are specifically sort of loyal to or focused upon the province of their, you know, sort of Valar parent. Um... But with Aule, Aule, or, or with Yavanna, Yavanna never gets the kind of rebuke that Aule gets. Yavanna doesn't seem to transgress. And I think the thing to emphasize here um, is that Yavanna is pointing out, whereas Aule is doing in secret something that he knows he can't do and knows he shouldn't do um, and is sort of rashly stepping into the role of Iluvatar himself, what Yavanna emphasizes is it was in the song. In other words, it's part of the harmony. And even in the passage that you just read, notice how she, what she is emphasizing to Manwe is that this part of my song, the, the, the trees that lifted up their voices and sang, um, were, were, you know, lifting up their arms in the, in the, in the wind and the rain, in other words, in harmony with Olmo, you know, you and Olmo, Manway, were making harmony with each other, and my harmony was also a part of that harmony. So these these singing, walking, sentient trees are part of that picture as well. Yeah, so it grew, it grew a little more organically out of the song instead of her taking the initiative to to create something that really she shouldn't have done. Right. And of course, once you use that term, it seems inescapable, right? That <laughs> Yovana's creatures would be organically part of the song and, and Aule's would be inorganic. Uh, yeah, yeah, that works on several levels. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, exactly. That, that, that certainly is what she emphasizes and which Manway confirms. You know, when Manway has his sort of transport back to the vision and he sees what he's seeing is the whole picture and the whole harmony and he's saying, yes. I mean, I love Manway's first reaction when Yovana says, hey, wouldn't it be cool if there were some trees that could, like, walk around and, like, defend things and kick butt? Wouldn't that be awesome? And and Manway says, it's a strange thought, right? Um, but then, of course, he realizes 
Yvonne is right. It was in the song. Yes, it sort of seems strange, but it was in the song. It is part of the harmony. So I think that we were not, it seems that we're not supposed to be seeing Yovana's action here or Yovana's thought here as transgressing in the same kind of way that Aule's is. Um, although, you know, in the ways in which we were talking about the dwarves as kind of carrying on or sort of bearing the, um, the, this, the sort of stain of Aule's transgression, um, that is the way that, 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 Iluvatar says, I won't amend it. You know, one could almost wonder if there's going to be any, uh, it's hard not to imagine, not to picture those scenes from the two towers of the Ents splitting rock and crumbling rock. uh, And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and thinking about how, how the dwarves will have no love for the creatures of, of, Yavanna's realm, and it seems like Yavanna's creatures have no particularly great love for Aule's stuff either. Yeah, and, and then I was just thinking, does that make the Ents then the first children of Iluvatar? Because they're really the first beings that come out of the song. You know, if if Yavanna's just following along with the song, you know, the Ents are... Um, you know, they they seem to have free will, like the other children of Iluvatar. Does that make them the first children of Iluvatar? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a huge question. Um, and uh, a really, uh, yeah, a, a really big one, which, uh, which, which I will stop putting off. Let's, let's definitely talk about Ents uh, and their nature. Chris, you had uh, something you wanted to, to ask or put in about this? There we go. I think I'm... All right. Um, the creation of the... Uh, what I was trying to type there was the spirits that uh, came in to the trees to apparently create the ants. I guess I was wondering where they came from or what kind of spirits they were, but I guess maybe they're just spirits like elves and men have spirits, so they come directly from Iluvatar. They're not Maiar or anything like that. Um, well, that I think, yeah, that I think is exactly the tricky question. Um, and that I think is really the question of what defines the children of Iluvatar. Um, you know, we, we know Tolkien, you know, works out in several of his essays, uh, you know, which you can find in the history of Middle Earth, especially in Sauron's, uh, in Morgoth's Ring, uh, volume 10, um, that, you know, all of the children of Iluvatar have body and spirit. This is sort of part of the, the traditional understanding. Um, but I'm not sure that in this passage, that's exactly what's being referred to. So we know that elves and men and presumably dwarves have both a, a spirit and a body. Um, and apparently... The bodies of trees and of some of some trees and of some animals. So yet again, that's the Olvar and the Kelvar. The Kelvar are animals generally, and the Olvar are plants generally. So some of the trees and some of the of the animals, specifically the eagles, Manway, the great eagles, Manway emphasizes. Um, obviously, they they have bodies already by by Yavanna's making and design. But when the children awake. 
Then the thought of Yavanna will awake also, and it will summon spirits from afar, and they will go among the Kelvar and the Olvar, and some will dwell therein and be held in reverence, and their just anger shall be feared. Um, so does this mean that they're going to have spirits, that they're going to have souls in the same way that humans and elves do? And I kind of hey. think... Go ahead. I was just thinking, it, to me, it's it's... I don't know that we can determine by what's said here. Um, to me, it's kind of vague because when you meet when you meet the ants in the in the third age, they sure operate like other like the like the children. Um, but I guess we were never told specifically that they have um, souls like the others. But uh, they sure seem to act like the other children. Yeah, yeah. Um... It it is. I, I agree. I don't think I don't think we're really given enough to be able to come to a really firm answer to this question. Um, we'll come back to this briefly later on when we talk about um, some of the creatures of Melkor, um, especially dragons. Almost this exact same language oh, is used yeah. to describe the dragons that that there are fell spirits that come and enter into it. Um, and there it does not seem like it's just a spirit. That sort of seems like more this is a body that is being given to, you know, like, a Maiar spirit. Or a faded elf, although that may be a little bit early in the Chronicles. Yeah, well, I think it is a little early for that. But, but yeah, I don't know. Elf. I mean, yeah, it does seem to be, well, it seems to be a the very, dragon. yeah, with the dragons. I mean, Glaurung certainly seems to have a very powerful spirit. Um but, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that, um, but it's pretty indeterminate. I mean, just from this passage, my, my, if all we had were this chapter, I would say that they are not children of Iluvatar, that is, Ents and Eagles are not children of Iluvatar, but that their situation is somewhat different, and that the spirits, that, that the, the thought of Yavanna will awaken. It will summon spirits um, that is presumably Maiar, like from among her people, right? You know, she has a bunch of minor Maiar spirits who are connected with her and that these spirits will enter into the trees and animate them and that those will be the ants. That's how I would interpret it if we had just this passage. But when we actually meet... Go ahead. I was going to say, isn't something similar said of the eagles, that spirits in the shape of eagles... Yes. Um, so that's almost a similar similar wording. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, the what is in the Valaquenta describing sort of the the people the the spirits that are with uh, Manway there and the connection between them. It's not clear um, whether all of the the you know the birds and the eagles who are with Manway in that initial description are like physical birds or whether they're just spirits in the shape of birds. So yeah, that connection itself is one of the things that would really lead me to this. But see, but the problem is when we actually meet Treebeard uh, and hear from him, especially here when he's talking about the loss of the Entwives and their eventual reunion, and he sings the Elven song. Um, you know, about the future destiny of the Ents and Entwives. I mean, the way he talks does not sound like, you know, my spirit, which is the spirit of a, you know, which is like a Maiar spirit, which has been placed into this tree body, will one day be liberated and I'll go back and hang out with Yavanna again in Valinor. It doesn't sound like that. Um, they sound like, and, and this, I think, okay, 
uh, I'm trying to, uh, uh, this is, this is, I mean, all of this gets onto really speculative grounds. Um, but of course, another thing, another parallel that I think it's important to think about here is the wizards, right? The wizards are a good example. They are not exactly children of Iluvatar. The wizards are spirits of Maiar who are incarnated into bodies. They are, so they are spirits which are joined with bodies. And they're joined with bodies in not just, these bodies are not just a physical manifestation that they have put on. They are incarnated within bodies and sort of made a part of the mortal world, um, which right. seems to be like what happens with Glaurung the dragon, um, it, an evil spirit given an evil body. Um, and so the question is, is the, are the ants in the, um, in the wizard category? But see, that's again, when you listen to Treebeard talk, he doesn't talk like that. Uh, you know, when Gandalf dies, um, he returns to Val. His spirit returns to Valinor, um, and when Saruman dies at the end of the Return of the King, his spirit wants to return to Valinor. But then the wind co- rises up from the west and blows his spirit away. Right. Um, you know, and and Saruman's spirit gets that clear like, no way, you're not coming back. Um, moment. So, you know, that but that's not how Treebeard talks. That's not how he talks about the end. That's not how he talks about his future destiny. And so, therefore, listening to Treebeard talk, I think it's almost like they are. Um, they are more like the children of Iluvatar, whose spirits and bodies are more intrinsically connected than... You almost envision them and the Entwives having gone... Ultimately, they're all destroyed and go to Mandos, and then they're given by whatever grace that at the end they give, they're given their own place. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, I, um, but nothing says that, but right, right, exactly. And I think that one thing, um, I think that one thing to keep in mind, this is sort of a, a, a good passage to help to remind us not to be too, um, too simplistic in our approach to Tolkien's works and to his thoughts. You know, we have to remember that this stuff are, you know, various things that he wrote over the course of about 60 years of work. And his mind changed a lot of times and all of his stuff doesn't work together. Um, You can see his own thought, you know, changing and developing and him going back and rethinking things. Um, And, you know, especially, of course, when you start delving into the history of Middle-earth stuff and we can really see all of that unpublished stuff that Tolkien was writing behind the scenes and thinking about stuff and working through. Um, If ever you're trying to answer the question, what does Tolkien think about this issue? That's an impossible question. Like, when I mean, uh, he thought lots of things about lots of things. There are not all, you know, there, there are maybe a few things, but not all that many things that you can take as, you know, this is like the hard bedrock of Tolkien's thought, which never changes or, or alters in his entire life. Um, sometimes people will debate about this. That is about the origin of the Ents. When Treebeard talks about the origin of the Ents in the Two Towers, he says elves began it. They went around waking up the trees and teaching them to talk. They always wanted to talk to everything, did the old elves. Right. So he says that it was just the elves that did it. And uh, some people will talk about that as if Treebeard's account is in conflict with what's described here in this chapter. And I don't think it's necessarily in conflict at all. No, I but uh, 
Um, but, but, but even besides that, even if it were, even if there is a change in the conception of elves or of, of Ents rather, um, between, you know, this passage and where it comes from eventually and, uh, and, and that passage in the two towers, you know, that wouldn't be surprising. Um, and I don't think that, uh, I don't think that we necessarily need to kind of labor ourselves to figure out like what was the one thing that Tolkien was sort of getting at. He thought several things and I think it's kind of interesting to think about both of them and to, to kind of see what sort of pictures these different conceptions sort of lead to. Um, it's kind of the, kind of the interesting thing. Go ahead, Chris. Um, I think you make a good point. I mean, it's fun to debate, to talk about all this stuff, but it is easy to fall in the trap for looking at the one single answer, particularly the stuff here that he never really laid out specifically, and then his ideas changed over time. We have to discuss, keep that in perspective and not try to, to know that there's not a, a definitive answer that you're ever going to get. <laughs> right, right, yeah. No, it's it's a very important thing to keep in mind. And, you know, Tolkien's Tolkien's, you know, sort of world in general is so complex and so consistent to such a high degree that it is so easy to start talking about it as if like it is a clear and objective thing. And that Tolkien's thought is this unified sort of monolithic thing that you can kind of get at. And it's not, I mean, it's the thought of a guy who, you know, which changed and developed and was sometimes mistaken and wrong and made blunders. And, you know, like that, that stuff happens. And, and it's, it's important for us to, to, to keep that in mind now, but again, this is, that's not a criticism. That's not to, to cut off discussion, but rather to increase it rather than getting into silly fights about like, what's the real truth behind the end ends um yes. instead of doing that and so like well let's just look at all of this stuff and consider all these things because i think all of the stories have meaning whether or not they you know perhaps um perhaps they wouldn't harmonize with each other but i think that they each show something interesting uh that we can kind of get at um i know a bunch of other people have been wanting to uh pitch in to the end discussion as well um let's see elizabeth you've uh had your hand up for a while there uh, yeah, I um I think it's really interesting that the Ents um don't awaken or aren't supposed to awaken until the children awake. Yeah. I think to me that's a, a real interesting parallel to uh the dwarves and that the dwarves um don't awake either until the children awake. It makes me think that maybe Iluvatar does see the Ents more as children, um unless maybe as uh Meyer or spirits or something like that. No, I think that's a really important point. I mean, we can certainly see they are contextualized with the children. And just as as Iluvatar is not going to allow Aule's impatience to be rewarded and to have the dwarves come before the appointed coming of the children, um, not that Yavanna has shown impatience, but she's not going to get her children first either. They're all still going to have to wait uh, until the elves come. So, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. It is certainly tied um, it is certainly tied with them. I think we can certainly see, at the very least, it sort of suggests that these, you know, whether they're children or not, they are sort of tied into this particular, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm tempted 
often tempted uh, when talking about the Silmarillion to use musical metaphors like this particular movement uh, in the music that is the movement of that that contains the coming of the children. Um, and it seems to be sort of most most relevant to that. Um, it, it does make me wonder, though, about the um, characterization of Treebeard as eldest. I think Kellerborn calls him that. And if the children woke first, then I would think that there would be maybe Cureden or one of the elves that would actually be elder. Yeah, and that's, well, I mean, that kind of gets us into um, what is what is kind of unclear, which is exactly how much time passes between the awaking of the elves and say their final passing into Valinor. We know that, or that is of the three kindreds. We know that quite a bit of time passes. Um, and there are some elves like Cirdan you mentioned. Um, we have no positive reason to think that Cirdan isn't like an original elf who woke by the shores of Quivienne. And we're not told that explicitly though. And enough time has passed ages. It seems have passed. Well, I mean, depending on how you would define ages before the rising of the sun and moon years aren't counted. So we don't really know. Um, even that concept of ages doesn't necessarily have all that much, um, clearly quantifiable meaning. Um, the count of time has begun with, uh, the trees as we discussed last time. Um, but that's like the count of days, but not yet really the count of years. We don't really have seasons and stuff yet in that sa- in the same way that we will later on with the with the sun and moon. So anyway, um, it's unclear. Was Cirdan one of the original elves? Possibly. We, again, we don't know that he wasn't, but I don't think it's ever said that he was. Um, maybe I'm forgetting a passage. If I am, somebody remind me. But, um, but I think it's important both... Uh, Celeborn, and also I think Gandalf. So yeah, Gandalf says, you know, when you hear his speech, you will hear the speech of the oldest of all living things. Um, that apparently he is older. So I don't think the question is that he is. I don't think the the the, the, the statement is that he is born before the elves, but that Treebeard clearly and explicitly is the eldest of all the ants. He did wake up at the same time that the elves first awoke by Quivienen. Um So presumably any of the elves who awoke by Quivienen who are still around uh, in Middle-earth uh, or in Valinor are sort of at the same, would be like the same age as Treebeard. Um, but I don't think there are that many of them still kicking around Middle-earth. Um, and that is seems to be what he's talking about. Cureden, as I agree, the only candidate I can think of um, that would really be likely a likely candidate. But again, with all of the time that passes, um, there was plenty of time for, uh, for Cureden potentially to have been like a second or third generation elf. I mean, I think there's only one elf that I can think of offhand who really draws attention to the fact that he was born by Quivienen, and that's Thingol right before he dies when he's making his final arrogant speech to the dwarves. Um, you know, we, we hear there that he, he was an original elf. Um, and there have to be some in, in Valinor. You've got to think that there are some in Valinor. But I think in Middle-earth, it seems possible that, um, that there are not that there are not too many of them left. So that seems to be what, they re- what they're referring to when they call him when they call him eldest. Um, let's see, Dusty, you had had uh, a question that you wanted to ask in connection with the Ents as well, I think. I think most of mine were kind of already answered. 
But most okay. of it is on like the spirits that Yvanna awoken. Would it would be pretty much all of the intelligent type animals like the eagles, the hound of Valinor, the ants, and were there any others that were specifically mentioned? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Uh, Huan is a is a, is a great point. I mean, we won't um, we won't meet him, of course, for a while, um, and he seems to be a fairly singular and famous character. Um, I don't think from Huan we're supposed to understand that he's like part of a whole like breed or species of um, very special hounds like him. Um, I mean, he's called things like the Hound of Valinor, for instance. So um, I don't think, I, I think he's pretty special. And one specific creature, then, it, I mean, it doesn't say that, that it was multiple things, that just certain things were awoken. And I guess they were given speech, or the ability to learn speech. Right. Huan clearly has speech, though though he can't just talk at will, right? There's It is given to him three times to speak with the tongues of men. Though there, I think... Um, uh, I think there we can see not that he only on three occasions can use or comprehend language, but that it's, you know, he has sort of a special dispensation only to be allowed to communicate verbally on three occasions. Um, and he chooses on which occasions to do that. No, I mean, Huan, I think, is in my mind the clearest example of the clearest example of a creature who is. I think pretty plainly, not just like a regular child of Iluvatar, you know, that he is clearly an external spirit who is entered into a physical animal body. Um, he does not operate, it seems to me, like a child of Iluvatar. You look at the restrictions he operates under as far as his communication goes. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think that was... Um, so yeah, that that was that was I think uh, um, I think I mean I, I'm sort of hedging here because it's hard to be certain about any of these things. But but I would point to Huan as a relatively clear example of that that other paradigm that is that um, kind of Maiar spirit joined with physical body kind of thing. Um, it's hard to talk about Huan too much because we haven't gotten to him yet, and we can come back to him certainly when we meet him uh, later on in the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, but I think he's a reasonably clear illustration of the kind of stuff that uh, – of the kind of thing that Treebeard certainly does not seem to be um, when we when we go on to, to meet him. Yeah, Joe, go ahead. No, I'm just going back. Uh, I know you mentioned – well, you mentioned something about Treebeard possibly waking when the elves did. I could be thinking of something totally different, but I thought in uh, Lord of the Rings, Treebeard said that um, they still are true gratification or gratitude towards the elves for waking them up or um, kind of bringing them in. Maybe he didn't mention that. I don't know. I just It yep. seems like that's echoing in my head somewhere. No, definitely. You are absolutely right. Um, there is absolutely no question of the sequence in the Lord of the Rings. Treebeard is quite clear about the fact that the elves were there before them and that the old elves awoke the trees and taught them to speak and that that's sort of where the where the Ents came from or the moment at which they sort of achieved awareness or the ability to communicate. Um, and again, that's why, that's exactly why that, 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 
exact passage in the two towers is the one which is by some people then put against this passage uh, in the Silmarillion and said, no, see, look, that's that's the real um, Yvonne. I didn't Yvonne didn't create them um, like Aule created the dwarves. Rather, the elves did it instead. Um, and again, I, you know, as I said before, I don't think this is this is a contradiction. The reason I don't think this is a contradiction is that um, the question of did the elves do it or did Yavanna do it? I'm not sure is really a meaningful question. That is, we see lots of times. Go, go ahead, Joe. I was going to, well, could you say somehow there's part of like her part of the song, Yvonne playing for it to happen through the elves possibly. I mean, right. It's exactly. not saying that she could not have acted by doing that. Right. Right. Were they acting out the will of Yovana in doing that? Sure, absolutely. Why not? I mean, we see lots of times. It's like, again, going back to the music, right? Are the Ainur playing their own music or are they are they playing Iluvatar's thought? Well, yes, both. Of course, there's no, there's no real distinction between those two things. So, um, well, I shouldn't say there's no distinction, but a thing can be both of them at the same time. Um, so I wouldn't see any, um, you know, perhaps actually on the ground in middle earth, it looked like how Treebeard described it. That doesn't make the sort of big picture vision that we get of it in this chapter in the Silmarillion inaccurate or untrue. Um, but you're right that it certainly shows us in the two towers, uh, the Ents proceed, the, the elves, Proceed in time, the ends pretty significantly. This passage opens it up to the fact that it was uh, that the two of them will be pretty close together. Um, uh, so yeah, that that um, yeah. So when the children awake, then the thought of Yavanna will awake also. Um, so that sort of seems to suggest that they're going to be more contemporaneous. And again, I. I don't think that we need to insist even that these two passages agree with each other. I think that it's quite possible that the Two Towers one is really a different kind of thought on Tolkien's part. I don't think they're necessarily contradictory, but I don't think that we have to work really long and hard to harmonize them beyond sort of the ways in which they they are already harmonized. Um, let's see. Dave, go ahead. So I just wanted to join in on Entfest uh, okay. really quickly by reading a uh, reading a, a Tolkien quote from uh, his letters. This is from Letter 163 to W. H. Auden, and if you're using the same edition of the book that I am, which I have no idea if you are, but it starts at the bottom of page 211 in a footnote. But he just says, "Take the ends, for instance. I did not consciously invent them at all." The chapter called Treebeard, from Treebeard's first remark on page 66, was written off more or less as it stands, with an effect on myself, except for labor pain, or uh, with an effect on myself, except for labor pains, almost like reading someone else's work. And I like Ents now because they do not seem to have anything to do with me. I dare say something had been going on in the unconscious for some time, and that accounts for my feelings throughout, especially when stuck that I was not inventing but reporting imperfectly and had at times to wait till they really happen, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, he uh, – in several other places, what he says is he never consciously thought of the Ents. They kind of sprang into existence when he wrote that chapter in The Two Towers. 
you know, I don't, I have no idea, maybe you know, I have no idea the order in which he wrote that chapter of the two towers and then the, the part of the Silmarillion we're reading now, but assuming that he wrote the chapter um, of the Silmarillion we're reading now, it's not even clear he was even thinking of the Ents when he wrote it. Um, well, uh, so one thing I would say, very interesting going on here. Yeah. One thing I would say to that is that, um, uh, the, this chapter, the Aule and Yavanna stuff is not in the book of lost tales. That is in the, it, it's, this is not there in the first go round. Uh, when he first conceived of the Silmarillion stories and first began to write out and work out this overall mythology, this stuff wasn't there. Um, so it is different from some of the other things, like you know many of the elements, um, a lot of the stuff, not not all of it, but most of the things, most of the main points of Chapter One of the Beginning of Days that we talked about last week, the trees, the two lamps, um, the the sort of fortification of of Valinor as the refuge of uh, of the Valar in the West. All that stuff was there from the original conception, even though there are some some significant changes and developments that were made to it. This does not seem to have been there, so it certainly does back up that idea. I'd have to go and look. I don't remember exactly. The history of Middle Earth contains like four or five different drafts of the Silmarillion material um, over the course of decades and decades of reworking it, and I can't remember offhand which one this chapter first appears in wh- where this first raises its head whether basically the big question would be is this pre or post lord of the rings and i don't know um it would be interesting to look up uh um, well, I, I wonder i wonder if this is one of those instances when we should be careful about trying to draw con- direct connections between things you know what i mean i some, somebody was saying this before that, that that sometimes we look for tidy explanations or we assume that that tolkien had all of all finalized versions of things uh, of the story in his mind yeah um and maybe he did toward the end but he you know it certainly as you said it, it was a work in progress and and maybe 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 the really the most appropriate statement you can make is more than likely what he's talking about here are the ends and but we shouldn't try to get too you know if we if we get caught up in trying to drill down on the specifics of what's the nature of their spirit are they the same as the elves or different did they wake up right. before after the same time as the elves that we're probably never going to get a, a a final clear concise consistent answer um yeah. and that you know if, if we look at this and also if we look at the Silmarillion um, and also the Lord of the Rings in terms of being stories that are being told by someone, the Silmarillion being told by the elves, the Lord of the Rings being reported by the hobbits, we keep in mind that these are stories being told by someone from a point of view that maybe they don't even have all the facts. Uh, right. uh, maybe they're getting it wrong or maybe they're reporting incomplete stories. Right. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say, one quick response I'd have, I think the fact that the uh, that the Ents are being referred to here i think is pretty uh i think that's pretty indisputable given the fact that the phrase the shepherds of the trees is used i think makes it really clear that the ants are being discussed here but but i but i agree with your overall point um that certainly i think that this is exactly a place where we should be careful not to try to assume that there is this one monolithic clearly harmonized um uh 
idea, you know, sort of singular idea that we can get to, which is like the vision, you know, Tolkien's vision of, of, of Middle Earth. I mean, at the time, in fact, even the inclusion of the Shepherds of the Trees sort of suggests to me, without having yet looked it up, suggests to me that this passage might be post-Lord of the Rings in origin, or at least that, that passage of it. Um, but, um, but before I just interrupted myself, I was going to say something else, which I'm now forgetting. Oh, well. Oh, well. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Um, that is about the, the lack of monolith. What would be the noun for? Monolithicity? Anyway, uh, monolithicness of Tolkien's thought. Um, you know, at that same, in, in the post Lord of the Rings period, when he was going back and revising the Silmarillion, you know, talk about his thought not remaining the same. He wanted to pitch a huge amount of stuff, which in the end, uh, Christopher has kept in the Silmarillion, most notably, um, and we'll talk about it more when we get there, the, 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 the creation of the sun and the moon. Um, he wanted to completely pitch that he was going to totally rewrite, um, that and the idea that the world was made spherical, um, at the point of the downfall of Numenor, that it starts off as flat and becomes spherical. Um, he was going to pitch all of that. He was going to completely rework the whole cosmology, um, and the whole creation story and be, well, not the creation story. He's going to keep the Anuindale, um, but as far as like all of the stuff from, la not all of it, but much of it from last week's chapter was going to be just pitched out the window. So, I mean, his own thought was changing in some pretty radical ways. Um, and he did not in any way agree with himself at all points. So I think that that's a really, uh, I think that it is definitely important to be, to be reminded of this. Um, okay, let's see. I see, Dusty, did you have uh, something else you wanted to contribute to the the end conversation here? No, it was pretty much all covered by other people. I, I posted a list of questions and I just said I'm reading wrong. Okay, okay. Um, let's see, Mike, I know that you wanted to go on and uh, uh, talk about a little bit something else related to Yovana? Um, leaving Enfest for the moment. Um, yes. I... I just wanted to comment on the character of Yovana. There's an anger and an anxiousness and almost, I don't know if it's fair to say, almost a, uh, a bitterness to her character in that um, I think what she's really afraid of is is the fact that she sees the writing on the wall in the future in that dwarves and men really won't have any use for her creation unless it, it, it's something that they can make something out of or use. And the passage that I look to is that, and I read this as fairly bitter when she says, long and a growing will be trees, swift shall they be in the felling, and unless they pay toll with fruit, a little more than their passing. Um, just that phrase, paying, you know, the trees having to pay their way, yeah. uh, you know, in the world. There's there's an anger and a, and a resentfulness to that. And then I was also looking at the, at the tail end of the chapter when um, she comes to announce to Aule that, you know, she also has um, uh, been granted sort of a sub-creation of her own. And the response from Aule is not, that's great, uh, Iluvatar is bountiful and merciful. He brings up the word wood again. Just he sort of brings it right back to the utilitarian end product of what the, the trees will provide for 
dwarves or men. And that word wood just sort of lands with a thud in that sentence after that long sort of mystical spiritual paragraph where Manwe and Yavana are talking about the creation of the eagles and the trees and the song. And then the, the, the chapter ends on a what I find to be kind of a, a discouraging utilitarian note, but kind of feels right in terms of the way things play out. So I, I, I didn't want to let that go by in terms of Yvonne's anxiousness, anger, bitterness, looking ahead and seeing what's coming. No, I, this is a really great point. And this really, um, you know, raises that other major issue that I mentioned at the very beginning um, about sort of Tolkien's whole concept of the natural world and the relationship between the proper relationship between people in the natural world. Um, and I think that we can see a couple things going on here. And that is, and, and the thing that I want to try to separate is between what Tolkien seems to be describing as the plan, like how things are supposed to work in the relationship between the children of Iluvatar and the natural world that is the creatures of Yavanna's domain. And then the sort of the the corruption, the consequences of 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 sin, of of the corruption, both of Melkor's corruption and of course in this passage of of Aule's sin as well. Um so yeah I, let's go back and look at a couple more of those passages. Aule um when Yovana says to Aule, because you hid hid this from me, your children will have little love for the things of my love, that lack of love by the dwarves, Yovana points to, that is a corruption. That's that's not how it's supposed to be. Um, and Aule answers, that shall also be true. She, she has just said, many a tree shall feel the bite of their iron without pity. Um, exactly as you point out, uh, Mike, when it comes back to, uh, nonetheless, they will have need of wood, right? Um, and I agree with you about the, the resonance of that word wood, uh, the, the way in which it sort of relegates these beautiful creatures of Yavana into raw materials um, is really striking. So anyway, so Aule says, that shall also be true of the children of Iluvatar, for they will eat and they will build. And though the things of thy realm have worth in themselves and would have worth if no children were to come, yet Eru will give them dominion. And they shall use all that they find in Arda, though not by the purpose of Eru, without respect or without gratitude. So I think the two important things there um, are that, first of all, we can see both the original plan here, and that is that, that the dominion of the children of Iluvatar is part of the original plan. Aule is saying what's going to happen, how, what is supposed to happen. The children of Iluvatar are going to have dominion. They're going to eat and they're going to build, and that seems to be okay. Cutting down trees for wood does not seem to be evil, an act of evil in its conception. Um, what is evil, what is a consequence, as Yovana points out, of Melkor darkening their hearts is cutting down trees, of using all the things that they find uh, in Arda without respect and without gratitude. Gratitude both to uh, yeah, yeah, Iluvatar for for providing them in the first place, and even it seems to suggest gratitude to the creatures themselves. That is gratitude to the trees for providing the wood to build their houses with. Um, 
and not simply looking at them merely as wood, merely as raw materials. Um, so, I mean, I think that we can see sort of both of those things, but I think it's important to remember that Dominion does seem to be that, that that's not bad, um, that that isn't just a, a consequence of others. And we can see in Yavana, this is again, another parallel. The more you look at these stories, the more, the more you see how closely parallel are the, uh, the connections between um, the Yavana half of the chapter and the Aule half of the chapter. Notice what she says to Aule just farther down on this page. Um, you know, when she talks about her heart being anxious, is it not enough that Melkor should have marred so many, that is so many of her, of her things, of her creatures shall nothing that I have, shall nothing that I have devised be free from the dominion of others. And of course, remember that was the point of the dwarves for what that is the point of the design of the dwarves that they were to resist dominion. And she knows her creatures can't resist dominion in the same way. Um, and she wishes they could. And, you know, the question, I guess the question that I would ask that I'd be interested to see what you guys thought about, um, is this desire, this anxiety of Yavanna, this desire for her creatures, for at least some of her creatures to escape dominion, is this Yavanna overstepping? Is she sinning here? Like, or not, not in the same way that Aulai sinned. Is she overstepping? Um, you know, I think, uh, I think that that's um, kind of an open question, kind of an interesting question. Um, what do you guys think? Does anyone have any uh, any answers to this? Oh, Dusty, that's a really great point. Dusty just uh, uh, typed out a reference to Treebeard's comment about uh, how Treebeard says he's not on anybody's side because no one is really on his side. Nobody cares for the trees as he does. Um, yeah, yeah, that's really great. Um, he is he is resisting dominion. Nobody is really on the side. He says not even really the elves, um, though the elves more than anybody else, but not even really the elves have the same perspective on it um, that he has. But it's interesting. I mean, that's is not that. I mean, there are echoes even in Treebeard's speech there of a kind of disharmony, right? Go ahead, Laura. I would say that the Ents uh, would resist Dominion uh, as much as the Dwarves would, it seems to me. That they really uh, don't take kindly to being um, to being bullied. I mean, look what they do to Saruman. So, yeah. so I, I think, that, you know, there's a little parallel to the Dwarves there. No, I agree. You know, and I think the one thing in this whole passage that does make me suspect that... Um, that does make me suspect that Yavanna is not, not, not overstepping because she's not doing the same thing that Aoi did, um, but it, that she also is guilty of the creation of a little bit of disharmony here is her last speech to Aule, you know, when she comes back and says, now let thy children beware for there shall walk a power in the forests whose wrath they will arouse at their peril. Um, now this is not a proactive force. You know, she doesn't say like your dwarves better watch out because our ants are coming for them, man. We're going to take them down. Like, this is not like, you know, West side story between Aule and Yovana here, but at the same time, there's something like, there's just a faint hint of sort of aggression. There's a faint hint of smugness there. Um, you know, I'm really glad now that 
there are you know creatures of mine who are going to be able to kick the butt of 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 your creatures and who are going to be able to put a stop uh to this to this dominion i'm not sure that it's it's not corrupt it's not wicked but i'm not sure that it's a hundred percent um a hundred percent okay either jack go ahead yeah i think she is stepping um um toward that line uh, i think she's succumbing to the same uh, temptation or sin that uh, Melkor or Feanor had, and it seems to be the, one of the big sins and themes of uh, Tolkien's work is, or the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, is attachment or possessiveness. And the same way that Feanor uh, possessed this, uh, was possessive towards the Silmarils, and later on in the Ring and the Lord of the Rings, the possessiveness. Um, she's feeling possessive of her creations and not just letting them be. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great point, Jack. I mean, you can see there is it is possible, I think, to characterize Yovana's attitude here as basically lacking in humility. Just just a little bit, just a little bit lacking in humility. She doesn't want to submit her creatures to the dominion of the children. That seems to be the plan. You know, Iluvatar is going to give the children dominion. And she doesn't, she's not really comfortable with that and wishes that were kind of weren't the case. Um, so, yeah, I think that there is, and, and so I think that that parallel of, of, of possessiveness, I mean, Feanor's sin, as we'll see uh, in the next couple of weeks or a couple of weeks from now, Feanor's sin is much more like Aule's sin uh, than it is like Yovana's. But, but yeah, I think that that possessiveness is a really good thing Um a really good thing to point to. Joe, go ahead. She kind of created that part, and um, I think she may have overstepped the boundaries a little bit because she went when she made her part. Possibly, she didn't think of creating these things to walk around and like do their own thing. I mean, when she kind of make, made the plants and the fruit and everything, I mean, it was all for the children anyway. Um, even though the dwarves weren't really a part of that, so we're kind of rising up and trying to do things on our own outside of what her gifts were, which I'm not sure if that's what Melkor was doing or not. I'm not sure if there's a connection there. <clears throat> that in itself kind of, she stepped out of bounds. She's not really doing what her part of the personality of a Lupitar is. Yeah. I mean, I do think that we can possibly see that. And I mean, I don't want to overstate the case and, and I, Yovana does not get, you get rebuked here and i don't think i mean i think i think we should make a huge deal of it but i do think that we can see um this as uh um yeah i mean i think that there is this is certainly not a case of Aule screws up and yavana doesn't screw up i think that we can see both sides kind of reflecting each other and both of them end up being kind of mythic cautionary tales um in that way both of them overstep in different ways and for different reasons. And I think both are really interesting and instructive in that way. Um, we are, it's getting late now. Uh, it's 1130 here on the East coast for those of us who are on the East coast. Uh, and I know that many of you are gonna, are needing to check out so that you can, you know, do like real life things tomorrow and stuff. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to keep uh, keep going beyond uh, beyond what everybody can do. Um, 
Thanks for uh, for an excellent discussion. Since the chapter was so short, even though there's so many things in it I'm interested in, I wasn't sure if maybe we'd have a slightly shorter session tonight. But I, I guess not. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, thanks everybody for your contributions tonight. That was that was that was fun. That was that was a great discussion. Um, anyone anyone have any last final short things that you want to throw in before we go? Anyone? No. All right, then I think we will I think we will sign off and we will begin looking at uh the elves and the arrival to Valinor next next week. So that'll be that'll be fun. Anyway, thanks everybody. Good night. See you next week. That's all for now. We'll keep these episodes coming as quickly as they're ready for posting. Thanks for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>